Well, I have to confess, I love the fact that we've called this series fake news. I am, I am absolutely fascinated by this whole online culture. I mean, I get that it's dangerous and horrible and all this, but the dynamics of how fake news works online, I find absolutely fascinating. Not, not just the, the idea that uh, some 16-year-old kid in his parents' basement in like Macedonia figured out how to earn 32, uh, 32 times what his parents make by generating news articles that just aren't true, which is interesting all in of itself. Um, to me, there's, I'm just so curious about the dynamics of how and why people believe and propagate fake news. In fact, I've done a little bit of research about this um, because there have been psychological studies about why fake news is so appealing and intriguing. Why people, I mean, conspiracy theories are all a part of it. Why people buy into the concept of fake news. Like why in 2018 do we have like flat earthers and people who believe in the Illuminati? Well, a couple of psychological studies that I became aware of. One says that at least part of the reason why people are drawn to fake news is out of anxiety. That there's just, uh, the more the world seems like it's out of control, the more like reality seems like it's random and chaotic, the more frightful it is, the more terrifying the world is, the more people reach and grab for anything that will seem like somewhat of an explanation for why things are the way that they are, because information is power. And if I can believe in this information, if I can believe this story that explains the reality I see, then at the very least, I feel like I'm empowered to equip uh, or equipped to deal with reality. Now, psychologists say it doesn't work at all. People who believe fake news actually are more anxious than people. But one, the one study that I was aware of says that, that the reason people gravitate towards fake news is because they are literally, physiologically, demonstrate the symptoms of addiction when it comes to answers and certainty. People are addicted to certainty, which I find fascinating, and I think a completely relevant explanation as to why the fake news that we're going to talk about this morning continues to persist in the world of Faith And the fake news we're going to talk about this morning is the, is the fake news that what God wants from you is your religious activity. I'm going to use the word religion uh, this morning. And what I'm going to mean by the word religion is basically a set or a system of defined and inflexible beliefs in the divine or in ultimate reality that manifests itself in structures and institutions of religion. That's really what I'm getting. It's all the visible stuff around what we believe about invisible reality. That's what religion is. And, and there's no question that even in the Bible, the idea that religion is central to what it means to be life with God is, emerges right out of the pages of scripture. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter five or chapter six, it says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as, excuse me, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. 
You read a passage like that, the writer of Deuteronomy goes on literally for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters to outline the commandments that God is giving. And there are commandments about worship, the right place to worship, the right way to worship, the right building to worship in, the right practices to do in worship. There are commands about ethics, right? The Ten Commandments among them. Don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, don't covet, don't take somebody else's spouse. Or, uh, the, there are all sorts of civic commandments. Here's how society should be organized. And this is how, if you're going to be faithful to God, I want you to do it. And it's just like chapters and chapters. Um, the the uh, religious leaders in Jesus' day counted 613 commandments that are put forward. And the, the Bible says, if we are careful to obey all this law, that will be our righteousness. There's this idea that we get into our heads, that somehow obeying all of the rules and commandments is the way that we live rightly before God, whether that's you know, sort of religious rules about worship and stuff, or whether that's rules about ethics or rules about society and culture, and just that somehow living rightly with God has to do with living the rules. Now, a lot of the rules that, that are described in Deuteronomy don't apply, you know, like, don't roast a goat in its mother's milk. Like that's not really compelling religious rule for us. But, um, but we find our own ways to do this stuff, right? We, we make rules about all sorts of stuff. We make uh, religious life about having right beliefs. People fight about this stuff all the time. That you have to believe exactly the right things. You have to get all your beliefs correct or else you're not living your righteousness. You're not living rightly before God. If you get any beliefs wrong, you're, you're living wrongly before God. Or we make rules about ethics, rules about how we're supposed to behave. And not just like biblical rules, don't, you know, be angry or like don't, uh, don't fracture relationships and don't whatever, cheat on your spouse and all this kind of stuff. Not just those rules, but like rules about what you can wear to church and not wear to church, right? Like I, I have a pair of ripped jeans at home that you all have never seen because it's just, because Chris, this, like it's just not worth the emails, because I'll get emails depending on what I wear to preach. We have rules about, you know, when I was growing up, rules, of, uh, Jeff talked a little bit about this last week, rules about whether Christians should go see R-rated movies, whether or not Christians should use swear words, whether or not Christians should drink alcohol, uh, whether, you know, just rules about everything. It's all the statements that we start with, Christians should or Christians shouldn't, and they become to define what we say is a religious way of life, and you have to live by it or else you're not living rightly with God, right? Or it's, you know, about organizing society. You have to vote a certain way because a certain political party best aligns with God's vision for society and a Christian. I remember listening to Christian radio a while ago and the host on the radio station said, I defy someone to call in and to explain to me how you could be a Christian and vote for Democrats, right? Like always safer to use American political illustrations, um, <laughs> right? But this is the thing. We, we sort of slip into this belief that what it means to live rightly before God is to obey all the rules. I, I remember years ago, somebody came to me and they were a newer kind of Christian. They came to me and said, I wish, I wish that the Bible had an appendix at the back and, and it was just what was listed there were all the possible sins. So that if I was about to make a decision, I could just sort of flip to the back and go, oh, is this a sin? Like, is this against the rules? And I could look, oh yeah, it is, okay. I won't do that. Like that's, 
almost the most natural way to think about what it means to live a life with God. And, it, and all of us do it. The people who are newer to faith do it because they see, because religion is sort of all the visible things about a life of faith. And so when you're new to something, what you do is you imitate the people who were already doing it, right? You learn from the people around you. When, when I was growing up, obviously, we all learn life skills, like how to handle money and stuff. We learn that from the people who model it for us. So for me, that was my parents. And... Uh, some stuff financially happened in private and some stuff, you know, happened in public in our family. And so I never saw my parents' budget. I never saw my parents save. I never saw them invest. I never saw them save up for stuff in the future or whatever. They did all that stuff. I just never saw it. What I did see was I saw them spend money and I saw them give money away. And so as a young adult, the two financial habits that I had developed were the ones that I'd seen. I spent money and I gave it away. I had no savings. I didn't know how to invest. Like I was a nightmare when we got married and Krista won't hesitate to say so. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is we do what we see. And since religion is all the visible stuff, that's what we see. And so people find it easy to just sort of slide in and say, well, this must be what Christians do. Christians go to church or Christians read their Bible every day and Christians pray and, you know, and that must be what this is about. But it's even true about people who have followed Jesus for a long time. It's super easy to slip back into that mentality. That's why we, that's why we fight about stuff. That's why we fight about um, what we believe, getting all of our beliefs correct, right? People are so afraid sometimes to even read material that challenges what you believe because they're afraid that they're going to change their mind and then they won't believe everything correctly anymore. Or what if, you know, what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, God's going to be mad because I'm living wrongly with him. Or, you know, uh, we fight about, you know, whether it's appropriate to play sports on Sunday morning and miss church or we fight, whatever it is that we fight about, we fight about it because we're afraid that if we don't get it right, God's going to be somehow disappointed in us or angry with us or judge us or whatever, right? And it, it totally makes sense because, because religion is driven by fear, right? And the reason we fall into religion is because there is a certainty to it. There's a, a tangibleness to it, a concreteness to it that we find comforting. It's, measure, it's measurable, right? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who were the religious leaders and the experts in being religious. In Matthew 23, 23, and he says this, he says to them, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. The Jewish law said you have to tithe 10% of everything you make in a year. And so here they are counting pennies. I mean, we can't even do that anymore, count pennies. They're, they're tithing 10% of the quarter that they pick up off the ground. They need a hay penny to tithe because they found a quarter on the ground, right? Like they're super meticulous about the tithing part. But Jesus says, but you don't do like mercy and justice and faithfulness. Why not? Why so meticulous on the rule about tithing and then nothing on the mercy side? Because you can't measure mercy right? Religion is so measurable. It's so tangible. I know whether I'm winning or losing. I know whether I'm doing it right because I'm just following the rules. This other stuff, mercy, justice, that's ambiguous. That takes discernment and judgment. I never know whether I'm doing it right. Religion is not just tangible and measurable. It's easy. It's easier than living life 
faithfully. He says two verses later, Jesus does, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Like picture a, a gigantic pot. You've been making chili and the bottom is all burnt and caked and there's all this gunk caked onto the bottom. The easy part of cleaning the pot is to take a cloth and wipe down the outside and make it shine, right? The, the hard part, the gross part, is to get inside and to dig and to scrape and to scoop up the gunk and to steal wool it until the inside shines. The reason we deal with the external stuff, the visible stuff, we put a shine on the outside of our lives by religion is because it's, it's easier. You never then have to go and deal with the gunk that's in your soul. We do it, frankly, because it's impressive, right? This is something else he says about them. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats at the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and called rabbi by others. Jesus says they, they oh, by the way, I'm a little disappointed with the number of people who are calling me rabbi these days, bowing down when you see me at Sobeys. But, but Jesus says, listen, their whole motivation is that people can see how religious they are. Right? And I think that becomes a sneaky motivation. When you, when you give, especially among, in a religious crowd, when you give tons of money to build a school in the third world and then you tell people about it, like that, that's impressive. People are like, wow, when you, you know, just let it slip that you read the Bible again in a year for the ninth year in a row, like that's just impressive. And it feels good to be able to cite accomplishments that way. The problem is that that's not at all what God wants from us. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, it says this. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom from religion that Christ has set us free. That's what Paul's talking about. He's writing to a bunch of Galatians who are Gentiles, they're not Jews. They haven't lived a day of their life under the Jewish religious law. And then one day, they decide that they want to follow Jesus. And at some point after that, and I don't know how or why, but they got it into their head that the better way to follow Jesus would be to adopt the Jewish religious law as Gentiles. Maybe like Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, so if you really want to follow Jesus, you better become Jewish. And so they were contemplating this idea that in their community, basically all the adult men should get circumcised and become Jews to like kind of become super followers of Jesus. Which, by the way, that is the worst evangelistic strategy. I've, I've heard some bad evangelism before, but hey, come and get circumcised so you can follow Jesus. Like, I'm becoming a Buddhist. Like, that's, it's just not, you know. But this is the thing. They, they're, they're contemplating becoming more religious so that they can impress God more with their followership. And this is Paul's response. He says, no, 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 no. He said, Christ came to set you free from the need of all of that. So now that you've been set free, don't go back and make yourself a slave to religion. That's what religion is. It's living your life, believing that what God really wants from you are all these external religious behaviors. That's slavery. Right? See, because 
When you live that way, you're driven by fear that you're never doing enough or that you're not doing the right stuff or you're never doing enough of the right stuff. You never know when your theology is right enough. You never know when your behavior is good enough. And so you just kind of keep pressing further and further and going harder and harder. You, you have to continually redouble your efforts and re-triple your efforts. You can never rest and never let down and never relax. You have to keep pressing on just in case you're not doing enough. And Paul says that's exactly the slavery that religion entails. Because he says, what he ends up going on to say to them is he said, listen, if you make your life a following of Jesus about how religious you can be, the end of the day, you'd better do it perfectly. Because if that's the standard you want to live up to, that's the standard God will judge. And if you don't do it perfectly, you fail. So you better make sure that all your beliefs are absolutely correct. And you better make sure that all your rules are absolutely the ones that God wants. And you better make sure that all of your politics and your voting and all the way you organize society, you better make sure that all of the stuff that you do is exactly what God wants you to do. Or guess what? You fail the whole thing. It's for freedom from all of that, from this compulsive drive to do more religious stuff to make sure that God is happy with you because you're making this your righteousness, your way of living rightly with God. It's for freedom from all of that that Christ has set you free. Now I need to say, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying because there's a whole generation of us who are probably prone to that religiosity and there's probably a different generation of us who have kind of gone the other way on that. God doesn't care what you do so long as you give me your heart. And that's equally false, actually. Paul goes on in Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. To, don't use your, free, your freedom to indulge in sin. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's quoting Jesus at that point. Jesus was once asked, what's the most important commandment if you're going to get the whole thing right? And Jesus said, love God with everything you have and everything you are and the way you're going to live that out in your life. If you really love God, you're going to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. That's the whole deal. That's the whole ballgame. What God wants is your love. You don't have to go to church to impress God. Because what God wants is not your church attendance. He wants your love. I imagine people across all three locations are like packing up. All right, I'm out of here. Right, like see you at the beach next Sunday after brunch. Um, no, no, no. Think about it. God, God doesn't want your church attendance. God actually, God doesn't love you more if you're a good boy or girl. He doesn't want your obedience to the rules. What he wants is you. He wants your heart. But listen to this. Think about this. If you genuinely love God, and you know that there's a group of people who are genuinely trying to love God, and that group of people all get together to share in their love for God and to learn to love God better, and they all gather in one place at one time, let's just say, you know, arbitrarily, 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning, wouldn't you want to be there to, to deepen your love for God? It's not a religious rule. It's compelled by your love for God. Um, if, if you 
One, if you really love God and you want to love him more and you found out that there was a bunch of books that had been written about what God is like and how much he loves you and what it looks like for you to love him back, you, 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 wouldn't you want to read those books? Like if there were 66, all within a leather-bound cover? Like, don't you want to read the Bible? Not as a religious exercise, but to learn to love God. If you found out that you could talk to God whenever you wanted, all day, every day, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to do that if you loved him or if you wanted to learn to love him? And if, if God said, if you really loved me, you would love the people that I love, which is everybody, which is all my children, wouldn't you say, well, if that matters to God, that matters to me because I love God and I love what he loves and so I'm going to love everybody else. Like, as a parent, if you want, the best way you can love me is to love my kids. If you don't love my kids, I will interpret that to mean that you don't really love me, period. So then wouldn't you want to find out what loving other people looks like and, and, and search in here and find out what it looks like to love people and then start to live that? Like, here's, here's my illustration of this. The, probably the way that I've disappointed Krista the most in our marriage. There's a, there's a long list, but somewhere near the top is the fact that I haven't yet prioritized romance to the degree that I know she would like, which is to say at all. I'm just, I'm not, I don't, that doesn't come naturally. I'm not, it's not how I think. And so I have to learn increasingly to make romance a priority in my life, which means I'm going to try and go out there and figure out both from Krista and from other places what that could look like in our marriage. But there are multiple ways, motivations by which I could live that out in my life. Right? I could create a checklist of stuff and systematically just cross one thing off after another. Are you happy? I did it. Are you did it? I did it. I put notes in your lunch. I bought you flowers. I bought you chocolates. Are you happy? She doesn't want that. She doesn't want that behavior. Right? Or I could, I could do all of those things, not begrudgingly, do them really energetically, but not because I love her, but because I, because I want what I might get from her in response. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know what I mean. Right? Like Krista doesn't want me to use romance to manipulate her for sex. She doesn't want that behavior, right? She'd rather I not do it than do it disingenuously. At the same time, I can do it in a way that's driven by fear. I'm sorry, I bought the wrong wine. I made the wrong meal. I didn't make the right reservations. We went on the wrong day. I bought the wrong movie tickets. I'm sorry I didn't tell you to bring a sweater. We should have taken the other car. Like, I can be freaking out the whole time wondering whether I'm doing it well enough. And Chris would be like, would you just relax? I don't care that it's perfect. I just care that you love me enough to want to show me in this way that you love me. Right? That's what God wants. God doesn't want your religious behavior. And he doesn't want you to freak about, out about whether or not you're being good enough. He just wants your heart. He just wants you to love him. And he wants you to do the things that people do when they love somebody. Because the, here's the thing. If the fake news is God wants your religious activity, that your relationship with God is dependent on what you do for God, the good news is this. Your relationship with God is dependent on what God has done for you. In Ephesians 2, it says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you've put your faith in Jesus, Paul says, God has saved you. It's what God has done. He has saved you. 
Through Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, God came into earth and he lived and he died and he was raised to dramatically transform the nature of the world, to make everything new, including you. He saved you by his life and death and resurrection from the penalty of your sin. By forgiving you of all the ways that you haven't loved God with all that you are and you have and haven't loved everybody else as much as you love yourself. He saved you from the power of sin or he's saving you currently from the power of sin in your life. He's changing you by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out so that you're increasingly becoming someone who loves God and who loves everybody else. And one day he will save you from the presence of sin and you'll spend an eternity in the presence of God where all sin and brokenness has been removed from creation and everything has been made new, including you. And the pattern of all of life is always only ever love. He has saved you and he's done it, it says, by grace. Grace means that God has freely chosen to give you a gift that you didn't deserve and you couldn't earn no matter what you did. It's a synonym for love. In love, God saved you. And Paul goes on to say, this isn't because of what you've done. There is no amount of religious behavior that can earn your saving. There is no amount of religious behavior that can make God love you more than he does. God will not love you more if you attend church more. He will not love you less if you attend church less. I have, get this conversation all the time. I bump into people in public and they're like, I'm so sorry, I missed church this week, but we'll be back next week. And I'm like, we don't take attendance. Like, I don't love you based on whether or not you come. I would want you to come because you love God enough to say, I need to figure out how to love God better. Right? God doesn't love you more if you're a good boy or girl and he doesn't love you less if you're not. God doesn't love you more if you're clean and sober and God doesn't love you less if you uh, fall off the wagon. God doesn't love you more if you're a generous social justice warrior fighting for the cause. God doesn't love you less if you're not. God doesn't love you more if you vote for political party X and he doesn't love you less if you vote for political party Y. God, what we do or don't do has absolutely no bearing on God's saving activity towards us. Your life with Jesus is not dependent on what you do for God. It's dependent on what God has done for you. The only thing that God has ever asked from you is faith. He says you've been saved by grace through faith. Faith means three things. Number one, it means it talks about what you believe. That you would believe what the Bible says to be true about Jesus. About his life and about his death and about his resurrection, that he is who he says he is and he did what he said he could do. That that you would believe what the Bible says is true about you, that you need the forgiving, changing, rescuing activity of God in your life to make you a person who loves God more deeply and loves everybody else. You need that in your life. Now, you don't have to believe it perfectly. You don't have to get all your beliefs correct because nobody can We all believe wrong stuff and we'll never believe entirely right stuff. You don't have to believe it perfectly. You don't have to believe it correctly, all of it. You don't have to believe it without doubt. You don't have to believe it unwaveringly. This isn't religion about right beliefs. Truth matters and we should be continue to press forward to try expand our understanding of truth. But but it doesn't, God doesn't love you more if you do. Um, Secondly, it's about belief. Secondly, it's about trust. 
Do you trust Jesus? Trust is the foundation of any loving relationship. Trust is what love looks like when it's lived out in relationship. Do you trust Jesus enough to believe what he says to be true about the life that God wants for you because God wants what's best for you because God is for you? So when Jesus says, human flourishing comes when you choose reconciliation instead of fractured relationships. When you choose to treat people with dignity instead of lust. When you choose to be faithful instead of abandoning people. Life is better when you choose to tell the truth instead of lying. When you choose peace instead of retaliation. When you choose love instead of hate. Especially your enemies. That God wants a life for you where you choose generosity instead of greed. Where you choose trust instead of worry. Where you choose mercy instead of judgmentalism. This is the life that God wants for you because he's for you. Sometimes you discover in choosing out of love to obey the rules that your parents' rules or your caregivers' rules, they put in place because they love you. Sometimes caregivers say no because they love you and want what's best for you. Do you trust Jesus enough to choose the life that he wants from, from you to see whether that isn't the better way? It's Beliefs, it's trust. Thirdly, it's faithfulness. It's the part of faith that says in richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do you part. Except in this case, it's until death do you join because you've gone to eternity to be with God forever in love. (laughs) Are you willing to stick it out with God even when it's confusing, even when it's hard, even when you're being crushed, even when it's not going your way, even when whatever your circumstances are, are you willing to continue to believe that God loves you, that God is for you, and that God, uh, that your best course of action is to stick it out with God no matter what. Now, you don't have to, I should go back when I talk about trust. You don't have to obey perfectly. You don't have to always get it right. You don't have to live a perfect life. You, like, we can fail because it's not a religion of obeying the right rules. Likewise with faithfulness, you don't have to believe unwaveringly. You can be angry at God. You can doubt God. You can shake your fist at God. You can, um, you can say, God, you stink. You can, like, it doesn't have to look all beautiful and rosy, but are you willing to stick it out anyway? Because that's what faithfulness is. This is what Jesus has asked for us, that if we will respond to the love of God expressed through Jesus in, with our beliefs, with our trust, and our faithfulness, That's when God does his saving thing. That's what it looks like to respond to God's love with love. Alexander Schmiemann says this. Religion is needed where there's a wall of separation between God and people. But Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down the wall between people and God. He has inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians 5 or 6. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Neither being super religious or intentionally being irreligious gains you any favor or standing or has any any validity or merit or value to God. God doesn't care. You can't impress him by being religious. You can't impress him by throwing off the religious shackles like That's not, God doesn't care about that stuff. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I'm going to say it again. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What is the only thing that counts? Faith expressing itself through love. Will you believe and trust and be faithful to Jesus by living a life of loving God and loving everybody else as much as God loves them? Because if you will, that's the response that Jesus wants. The fake news is that your life with God has to do with what you do for God. The good news is that your life with God has everything to do with what God has done for you. And he's inviting you to respond in faith and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't believe all of the ways that I make this about something other than love something other than your love for me, which you have lived out in the person of Jesus Christ and which you have implanted in me in the person of your Holy Spirit. I make it something other than love in the way that I love you back and the way that I love the people around me or fail to do those things because I make it about all sorts of religious behaviors and blah, 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 blah. Would you save us from that? Would you help us to see that the good news is always only ever about your love for us and our love for you. And it's literally about nothing else. Do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.